Speaking of Veterans Day, in 1936, Belgium uh, was still recovering from World War I. Uh, the, the war had ended 18 years earlier, but Belgium as a country was still recovering. They were reconstructing uh, a lot of the facilities and buildings that had been destroyed. And they were struggling with an economy which was, had run into a post-war depression and still hadn't recovered. Unemployment was really, really high. And to put it bluntly, uh, Belgium was just sick of war. They were sick of it. And so they decided to do something about it. The government decided to enact what they called a policy of neutrality. And King Leopold III basically came out and, and declared that Belgium would remain neutral and uninvolved in the event another world war took place. He just said, we're out. We're not going to, we're going to, we're, we're just going to sit on the sidelines. So they canceled all their military alliances, all the, the uh, treaties that they had with other countries that said, we'll come to your aid, you'll come to our aid in the event of a war. They just canceled them all. They said, we will not go to war against any other country, and we will not go to war with another country. We're just going to abstain from war. We're going to sit on the sidelines. We're going to sit it out. Well, that was a pretty good policy, and people enjoyed it, for about three years. And three years later, in 1939, Hitler's German army invaded Poland, and World War II broke out. And six months later, Hitler and his tanks and his troops and his warplanes swept into Belgium and conquered the entire country in 18 days. Hitler said, those who want to live, let them fight. Those who don't want to fight do not deserve to live. Hitler didn't care that Belgium had this, had this, uh, had this policy of neutrality. He wanted Belgium, and he needed it in order to invade France, and so in 18 days he took it. And Belgium found out the hard way that when it comes to war, neutrality is really not an option. So we're coming today in our series that we call the He Said What, where we look at the radical commands of Jesus from our Bibles. This morning we're going to look at, a, at one of the things that Jesus said. It comes from Matthew chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew 12. We'll spend most of our morning actually in Matthew 12. But this is, the, uh, this is the bold statement that we want to talk about this morning. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, which says, Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you look around the context of this, during Jesus' three-year ministry, he had a lot of verbal conflicts with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as you know, were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and he had a lot of conflict with them. Jesus uh, was particularly critical of the Pharisees, for, because they were legalistic. Uh, they had this extensive system of do's and don'ts that they placed burdens on the Jewish people, which prevented them from, from really enjoying or, or taking joy in worshiping God. And the Pharisees likewise had an issue with Jesus because uh, they thought he was a false teacher. Uh, and and so, so there was a, a fair bit of conflict there. Uh, Jesus was, on the other hand, he was a good speaker, and he was quite charismatic. And so he's leading a lot of people to him because of his teaching, and so the Jews were jealous of that also because many of the Jews then were following and trying to figure out what this Jesus had to say. The biggest problem the Pharisees had is they couldn't really explain how a false teacher could do so many miracles. And so in chapter 12, what they decided to do is they brought a really, really hard case for Jesus to heal. They found a man who was demon-possessed and blind and mute, all three, and they brought him to Jesus almost as a test because they were thinking that he couldn't heal him. 
And so they did. We pick this up in verse 22 of that same chapter, Matthew chapter 12. It says, Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he, that is Jesus, healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? The Pharisees were surprised that he healed the man, but so were the people. And they said, Can this be the son of David? And what they really meant was, they said, could this possibly be the Messiah, the promised descendant of David that God promised to send to us in the future, God promised to send, God promised to David to send in the future to establish an eternal kingdom for Israel. And of course, the Pharisees said, oh my gosh, don't, let's not get on that. And we see their response in verse 24. It says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Well, this Beelzebub, prince of demons, of course, refers to Satan. And so what the Pharisees were essentially saying is, yeah, this, this guy, Jesus, he does miracles, but he only does so by the power of Satan. Jesus is one of Satan's demons. He's in Satan's army, the Pharisees were saying. And so Jesus, of course, had to answer that, and he did. But he, he, uh, he, he said, first of all, that we're in a spiritual war. There's a spiritual war going on. There's two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of Satan. And then he went on and he gave three logical reasons why Jesus couldn't be using Satan's power to drive out demons. And the three points are simply these. One, he says, if I'm casting out Satan's demons using Satan's power, then Satan would be working against himself. And in that event, a kingdom that works against itself is divided and will therefore fall. His second point is that, is that some of the Jewish leaders were also casting out demons. And he said, well, if, if you think that your Jewish leaders are casting out demons by God's power, what makes you think that I'm not using God's power also to cast out demons? And then his third point was simply that by driving out Satan's demons, Jesus was saying, I am more powerful than Satan. I don't need Satan's power to do anything. And we see this, these three logical arguments coming through in, in verses 25 to 29. It says, Knowing their thoughts, he that is Jesus said to them, that is to the Pharisees, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And then Jesus makes a very strong statement that we read at the beginning. He says in verse 30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So at this point in his interaction with the Pharisees, he, he, he draws a line in the sand. He says, he says there's only two sides. There's a kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of Satan. He says you have to choose between them. He says there's no neutral ground. There's no sitting on the sidelines or sitting on the fence. You must be with Jesus or you must be with Satan. And then he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. 
And then he goes on and he says, says whatever, uh, whoever does not gather with me scatters. What does he mean by that? He says, gathering and scattering. Well, gathering and scattering are two common things that farmers and shepherds do. Good shepherds will gather their sheep uh, into the fold. If a, if a wolf were to come into the midst of, a sh- of the sheep, he would, he would attack them and scatter them. So we have this idea of, of good shepherds gathering sheep and evil ones scattering them. If you're a farmer, you would have this idea of, of gathering grain and tying them in bundles and in sheaves. A good farmer would do that. And a poor farmer would allow the wheat to scatter in the field and be lost. And, of course, Jesus isn't talking here about wheat or about sheep. He's talking about people. And he's basically saying is that if you're on Jesus' side, you are with him, with him. And just like Jesus, you will, you will help in gathering people to Jesus and leading them to believe in Jesus. And if you're not with Jesus, you're against him. You're against him. And like Satan, you will, you will be working on Satan's side to scatter people and to drive them away from Jesus. So, to summarize, Matthew twelve thirty, which says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying, basically, you need to choose sides. You need to choose sides. You're either with me, but if you're not with me, you're against me. You either help me gather people to myself, or you scatter them. Every man and woman has to make a choice. Neutrality is not an option, Jesus says. If you're not with me, you're against me. Now, some of you are saying to yourselves now, okay, but why is this such a radical command? What's so radical about this? Well, I think part of the reason it's radical is because in our culture today, we don't like to have to choose. We like to have options. We don't want to be pinned down and forced to choose between one side or another. We see this all over the place. In fact, there are many things in life where we don't have to choose. For example, my grandson, Tiger, he doesn't like to play dodgeball, probably because he gets hit in the face a lot. So when the kids play dodgeball, he doesn't have to choose sides. He just sits out the game entirely, and that's okay. He doesn't need to choose. My wife and I stopped at Wendy's on the way back from a recent trip to see my son, and the lady behind the counter asked me, you want raspberry vinaigrette? or lemon, garlic, Caesar dressing. But I didn't have to choose because I don't eat salads. I let my wife choose. Sometimes my wife says, uh, I get home for dinner, and I say, what's for dinner? She says, well, you can either have the leftover meatloaf or you can have the leftover stew. I go, oh, I don't think I want to choose. Let's go out for dinner. And it's perfectly okay to do that. You can avoid making choices because you have options, and we like that. And as a culture, that's what we like to do. And many people in our culture feel the same way about Jesus. They feel as though Jesus is there, but we don't really have to choose. We don't need to really decide. Many people hear about Jesus, and they just say, Oh, look, I don't want to get involved. Uh, Don't bother me with the gospel. I want to stay neutral. I don't want to take sides. And Jesus says, no, you can't do that. You have to choose. Because if you're not with me, you're against me. Why? Why can't people choose? Why can't people stay neutral when it comes to Jesus? 
Well, I think the answer is that because you cannot stay neutral in a world war. Just like Belgium thought that they could stay neutral, they got involved in a world war. And the problem with the world war in World War II was that the battleground was in Belgium. They couldn't sit on the sidelines because they were the playing field. Hitler brought the, the, the entire battle to Belgium, and it, there was no fence to sit on. There was no sidelines to go to. When Hitler marched in with his tanks and his troops and his, and his warplanes, people flocked out of Belgium. They ran away. They got on the streets on bicycles and cars and trains and planes and boats. It was the best way they could to get out, but they didn't escape. Hundreds of thousands of them were taken as prisoners of war. And the very same thing is true today. Because there's a world war going on today, and it's a spiritual world war. And it's the spiritual world war that Jesus makes very clear in Matthew chapter 12. Paul describes this world war in, in Ephesians chapter 12, where many of you know as we're talking about the armor of God. What do we need the armor of God for? Because we're in a spiritual war. And Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual world war, but, but the battlefield isn't some piece of land in Western Europe. The battlefield is right here inside of us. And so we're the same way. We, we can't sort of sit on the sidelines because the battle's right in here. And it's a spiritual battle that's taking place, and it's going on right now. Satan and his demons are working hard. They're working hard to make sure that people don't come to a saving faith in Jesus. They're working hard to, to make sure that people don't go to heaven. And they lie and they cheat and they steal and they murder to make that happen. And that spiritual warfare is going on right now, but many people don't realize it. Why? Because for most people, it's invisible. And if you don't know that there's a spiritual war going on, then you're not likely to think about choosing sides. And so many people decide that they can just remain neutral. They think that they can ignore Jesus, and they hear the gospel message, and they think they don't have to choose, and they believe they don't need to decide whether to join the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. And they think they can avoid the consequences of spiritual war by sitting out. But they can't. If they don't choose, they think they remain neutral, what they've done is they've chosen for Satan. Jesus makes that very clear. Whoever is not with me is against me. And so Jesus says you must choose sides. You're either going to fight against evil or you're going to fight against righteousness. You're either going to fight with Satan or you're going to fight with Jesus. Neutrality is not an option. There's no truce. There's no ceasefire. There's no peace treaty. There's no timeout. There's no fence to sit on. There's no sidelines to stand on. In the spiritual warfare that we're in now, we're all in the game. And it's war. Jesus says, choose a side. Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army. And what he says to every man, woman, and child is, join me. Join my army. Be with me. Because whoever is not with me, is against me. Now, this little phrase, with me, is interesting. 
And I think it's important for us to think about what it means. What did Jesus mean when he says, you're going to be with me? Well, this little phrase, with me, we use it all, all the time. It's just this little phrase. It means a lot of different things depending on the context. But in most cases, it requires us or talks about or thinks of making some kind of a commitment. For example, if I were to give my wife Karen directions about how to get to someone's house, driving in a car, and I want to make sure that the directions are clear, I might say to her, are you with me? Are you with me? Meaning, do you understand mentally what it is that I've just described to you? And that's a, that's a pretty small commitment. All she needs to do is sort of think alongside of my directions. Or maybe I'm going to the grocery store. And I would say to my wife, are you going with me? And so by asking her that, I'm making, asking her to make a slightly bigger but still pretty small commitment in time and space to be physically along with me and to set aside the other things she may have going on to go to the grocery store with me. And it's still a pretty small commitment. Or maybe Karen and I are looking to buy a new car. And I say to her, uh, honey, I think we should buy the Honda Civic because it gets really good gas mileage and it's got uh, better uh, uh, maintenance and, and, and quality and reliability rating. Are you with me? This is a little bigger commitment I'm asking her for. I'm asking her to, to take her preferences and her desires and her likes and her dislikes and, and to combine those with mine and to align them with mine and to buy a car with me. And so that commitment's a little bit bigger. Karen and I hike a lot, and we often have this thing where we come to a fork in the, in the trail. After we've been hiking for several hours, and you take the left-hand fork of the trail, and it leads you back to the car in a few minutes, or you take the right-hand fork of the trail, and it leads you on a three-mile Sorry, a three-hour hike, a loop hike, before you get back to the car. And sometimes I'll say to her, honey, I, 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 I'm in it. I'm, I think we can go further. We're doing pretty good. The weather's good, and you don't seem to be too tired. Are you with me? And so I'm asking her emotionally and physically to, to, to take another three hours on her hike, and so that's a bit bigger commitment. Or maybe I might get an offer from a church in New Jersey. They want to plant a church in New Jersey, and so they call me and they offer me the position of senior pastor. And they say, we would like you to come and plant this church. And it would require us to sell our house and to move away from our kids and our grandkids and our friends and our church home to take a huge pay cut and take a gigantic risk that the whole thing will fail. And I say to my wife, I think we should go. Are you with me? I'm asking her to make a very big commitment. I'm asking her to make a commitment to, to go with me spiritually and emotionally and socially and relationally and vocationally and financially. And that's a big commitment. So... What kind of a commitment is Jesus asking when he says, I want you to be with me? What kind of a commitment is Jesus asking for? Is he, is he saying, I want you to be with me mentally? I want you to think about being with me? Spiritually? In your heart? Emotionally? Does he want us to be with him financially? Vocationally? Willfully? Intellectually? Intellectually? 
Is Jesus saying, be with me, you know, some of the above, none of the above, all of the above? Well, he doesn't really say in chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12. He just says, whoever is not with me is against me. And so to find out what kind of commitment Jesus is looking for, we need to look across the rest of our Bible for that. And what I want to do is I want to just run through sort of rapid-fire fashion a number of things that the Bible makes very clear. That to be with Jesus is not a small commitment. In fact, this is just a whole series of radical commands. You could probably pick any one of these and have a whole sermon on he said what? So let me just run through these. You won't be able to keep up because I'm going to just I'm going to fly through them. So just listen. To be with Jesus is to choose to believe in him. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. To be with Jesus, to be with him spiritually. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. To be with Jesus is to put Jesus ahead of yourself. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To be with Jesus is to put Jesus ahead of your family. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We'll come back and talk about that one in two weeks. To be with Jesus is to put Jesus ahead of everything you own. He said, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To be with Jesus is to love others who are also with Jesus. Jesus said in, in John chapter 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. To be with Jesus is to follow his example and suffer. First Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. To be with Jesus is to be ready for people to persecute you. 2 Timothy says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. To be with Jesus is to do good works to glorify God. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. To be with Jesus is to obey Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. Bear, we'll talk about this one next week. To be with Jesus is to work hard at your job, whatever it is. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. To be with Jesus is to change and to grow, not stay stagnant or stay the same. Second Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To be with Jesus is to make disciples. The Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And finally, to be with Jesus is to love God with everything you have, every part of you. Luke 10, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And, and, and that's just a sample. The list goes on and on. The New Testament is full of things and, and descriptions of how Jesus is calling us to a, a radical commitment. He wants us to be distinctly, radically different than the people around us. He wants us to be all in. 
We're in a spiritual world war, and what Jesus says is, I want you to come and I want you to enlist in my army. I want you to enlist in the kingdom of God. I want you to fight on my behalf. I want you to be a soldier for Jesus. He wants soldiers who are committed mentally and intellectually and spiritually and socially and willfully and financially. And it's not a lighthearted commitment he's looking for. It's all of the above. And Jesus has this high and radical standard for his soldiers in his army. And it's a, it's a high standard. It's a, one that's, well, practically impossible. For the first 26 years of my life, I was against Jesus. For the first 26 years, I wasn't with Jesus in any sense. I thought I was sitting on the sidelines saying, don't talk to me about Jesus, just not interested. Don't talk to me about tennis, I don't play tennis, just not interested. What I didn't know at the time was that I was against Jesus, that there was a spiritual war going on and Satan was winning it in my heart. But he's such a clever warrior that I barely, barely even felt it. And then when I was 26 years old, I heard the gospel message clearly for the first time. I heard that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins, and by believing in Jesus, all my sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. And I was reconciled to God, and I could go to heaven when I died. And when I was 26, I, I believed that. And I became a Christian. And on that very same day, I enlisted in Jesus' army reporting to the commander of the Lord's army. And I chose to fight for the kingdom of God. But I was a pretty raw recruit. I was a rookie soldier. I I, I didn't know anything about the Bible except the gospel message. I couldn't have found Philippians without the index in my Bible. I didn't know very much about Jesus, and a lot of the things that I thought I knew were false. I had a, a significant sin patterns in my life, which I knew were not becoming of a good soldier. I had a long way to go before I become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. A long, 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 long way. And I was a long way from ever being committed to Jesus in the kind of commitment that it was clear that his Bible was laying down for us. I knew I had a long way to go. And Jesus sets a high standard for his soldiers, but he also asks us to strive for that standard. Strive for it. And he doesn't expect us to be there the day that we enlist, which is a good thing, because I wasn't anywhere close. And yet Jesus calls us, once we trust in Jesus and enlist in his army, is to train, train to become a better soldier. And it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process of working and striving. God and Jesus working in me and me cooperating and working out to become a better soldier. And the goal is to be like Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army. And I'll never get there until I die or until Jesus returns. But I ought to be on this upward path to becoming more and more like Jesus every day. 
I won't be a perfect soldier until I die or Jesus returns. But in the meantime, I will train, I will strive. With God's help, I'm on my way to get there. So, Jesus says, choose. Choose. Whoever is not with me is against me. We are in a spiritual world war. Neutrality is not an option, Jesus says. Choose. Choose me, Jesus says. Enlist in my army and then train and then become slowly over time a fully devoted follower and soldier in Jesus' army. A soldier who is with me and not against me. Let's pray. Lord God, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and we come before you this morning recognizing that you and you alone are worthy. Lord, you've told us that there is no neutrality when it comes to your son Jesus. We cannot sit on the sidelines. There's a spiritual war going on, and we need to choose. And we need to enlist in Jesus' army, and we need to become more and more like Jesus every day. And so we thank you. We thank you that Jesus has invited us to be in his army, to be with him. We pray, Lord God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit we might do so. Become the men and women soldiers that you want us to be. We love you and we pray all this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.